The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O God, who taught the hearts of your faithful people by sending to them the light of your Holy Spirit, grant us by the same Spirit to have a right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his holy comfort. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. Okay, so we have, we've gotten Jesus, uh, we've gotten this far in the creed that he's now uh, down from the cross, he's been buried and risen and ascended to the right hand of the Father, and then what comes next in the Apostles' Creed? He, he will come again <laughs> uh, to judge the living and the dead. Um, we understand uh, Jesus' future judgment um, in question 74, if you're following along in the catechism, uh, the world as we know it will come to an end. Now, does this mean that uh, kind of the earth will just sort of out of existence? This is actually referring more to the world as in the, the, the um, like the world of sports or something like that. Um, the, 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 the current age will come to an end and a new age ushered in. Um, all that is wrong will be made right. Um, all people who have died will be resurrected. Now, this speaks to uh, a very key and core Christian doctrine, which is that of the resurrection of the dead, and we'll say more about that uh, as we go through. But for the Christian, the implication of the resurrection of Jesus is that uh, this is a first fruits. Um, uh, Paul talks about how Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead, um, meaning that you and I can look forward to a resurrection like his. Um, Paul says in Romans, if we have died with him in a death like his, we will certainly be raised with him in a resurrection like his. Um, this is to say that the resurrection is general, okay? Um, it's not just uh, those who will be going to heaven uh, who will be raised. All will be raised, um, and together with those still living will be judged by Jesus. Now, that's something that is a little bit of a caveat on that, that those who are living will be, uh, will, don't have the, the privilege of being, uh, of dying and rising. But uh, I do think, and I'll say this, that I do think that we can say that those who are alive still um, will go through some manner of transformation, uh, will be put in the order of uh, a resurrected uh, human being. And then each will receive uh, either eternal rejection or eternal punishment um, or eternal blessing and welcome into the fullness of life with God. Um, we Anglicans believe firmly in judgment. Um, uh, we uh, uh, talk uh, a great deal about uh, the realities of, of heaven and hell, um, and so I think you need to hear that. Um, there's been a kind of current move on to talk about uh, Christian universalism, and uh, there's, I should say this, there's kind of like the, the good kind of Christian universalism and then the really bad kind, um, and I can entertain talking about the good kind if you want for a little bit, uh, but, but this idea that um, God does not judge, but simply just sort of says, come on in, y'all, is completely foreign to the Christian imagination, and I want to make that clear. Um, if, if there's any kind of Christian universalism that can be entertained by Orthodox Christians, it's something like this that yes, judgment is real, yes, punishment for sin is real, yes, some kind of hell is real, uh, but over time uh, and, and for the long haul, um, even, uh, even the damned are drawn into God's mercy, and that's something like that. Um, but I want to make that clear, that there's a kind of uh, understanding that all things are joined together and that uh, Christ is all in all, and there's a, there's a kind of... Um, uh, there's an understanding to that effect which has not really passed away in the Christian imagination uh, over all this time. But this kind of idea that um, God is sort of not a judge and this, there won't be judgment is completely foreign to the Christian idea. Um, and so I want to make that clear. You've got to listen. I'm just going to say this. A non-judgmental God is not good news. Right? Think about this for just a second. Flip on the news and say, basically, as you watch it, God, what are you going to do about this? And he says, eh, I'm non-judgmental. <laughs> Is that good news? Not at all, right? So, so we've got to see this, that, um, that God does have a will for this world, and the will is to have all things restored in his well-beloved Son. Um, but that does require judgment. And, um, and I, don't, I think Christians need to start speaking about judgment um, in more positive ways and less dark and foreboding ways, um, which is to say that all things get put to right. 
that's good news for this world. Um, and uh, so we need to not fear judgment, um, and, uh, and we should say that. We should say as much. Let's go to question 75. How should you live in light of Jesus' coming return for judgment? Because I do not know when Jesus will come, I must be ready to stand before Him each and every day of my life. I should eagerly seek to make Him known to others, and I should encourage and support the whole church as best I can to live in readiness for His return. Each of us lives with no knowledge of when, of the hour or the day. Um, and so, uh, the, the, the position of the Christian is one of, of uh, eternal vigilance in the face of this coming reality. Um, you know, I was sharing with a few people yesterday at a party, you know, Christians used to do things like keep skulls on their desks. Why? It's called a memento mori. It's great. What's, what's, the, what's the reason? It seems very morbid, right? Yeah, it's, it's you look at the skull and you say, someday I'm going to die. And for the Christian, that's actually good news. Because it says, whatever happens today, at the end of the day, it's really not that big a deal, right? Whatever struggles I face, whatever emails I have to respond to, I'm going to die at some point. It might be today. Um, so, so it lets you kind of say, not such a big deal. What's the big deal? Being ready, being prepared, being, uh, being holy, for instance. Um, so this is a, a constant attitude. You know, some of the old great uh, medieval devotional manuals say, as soon as you get out of bed and as soon as your feet hit the floor, you should make the sign of the cross in the morning and think to yourself, self, today I might die. Now, to the modern ear, that sounds very morbid. But for, to the Christian, this speaks to the hope that we have, um, which is that I might die, but I can uh, because of the grace and mercy of Jesus, be ready for this. Um, so we seek uh, to be ready to stand before Him every day of our lives. We should also seek to make Him known to others um, and should encourage and support the whole church. Um, this is uh, part of the... Um, I'll say this as a parish priest. You know, I, I try not to make distinctions between all of you, but, but the people I really appreciate in the church are the ones who seek to support and encourage the church. Um, because there's this, there's this, oftentimes there's a problem of, of and it's, this is a church culture issue in America, it's things like this. Um, well, you know, the church exists to, ser to, to serve my needs. So if my needs aren't being met, I'm going to go somewhere else. Um, and listen, I get that for immature Christians, but for mature Christians it should be, I seek to support and serve the church, okay? Um, I'm just going to make that clear. Um, but consider for a moment, what kind of what kind of life and attitude you have to have in order to have that? You have to have this kind of open hand about it, right? You say, this can be taken away from me at any point. Um, I, could, I could die tomorrow, and what would I have done? What would I have done? Um, this is part of the attitude we ought to have when we come into the church on Sunday mornings. It should be, I could die this afternoon. Um, how, do I, how do I want to worship God today? as if it were my last. Um, I had a friend in college who, uh, who got cancer, and it was terrible. He was, on, he was on terrible chemotherapy for the last 18 months of his time in college, and um, it, was, it was awful. But he was cured at the end of it. Um, he was driving down to MD Anderson from College Station on a weekly basis to receive treatments, and it was awful. But he said to me uh, and a group of guys at the end of all this, he said, you know, the, the great thing about this is that Every single day I have left is a gift, and I know it. And he said, but it's no different for you. And that's the kind of perspective that the Christian has in the face of judgment, um, is to live every day in expectation of this. Question 76, should you be afraid of God's judgment? The unrepentant should fear God's judgment, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. But for those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. I have no reason to fear the coming judgment, for my judge is my Savior, Jesus Christ, who loves me, died for me, and intercedes for me. I love this answer. This is, this is a solid gold catechetical answer. Uh, who should fear judgment? Those who are unrepentant. 
Now, I want to say a little bit about it, repentance, because this is said later in the catechism, and it's a bit too far down the road. But repentance is not saying, I will change. Okay, if, if you think that's what repentance is, there's probably a reason you're failing in repentance, right? Because uh, if, if, if your idea of repentance is, I will change my life by my own power and strength, well, it was your lack of power and strength that got you in the place you're in in the first place. So what's, what is Repentance. It's, it's surrender to God's will, surrender to God's grace, wherein you say, I don't have the power to do this. I don't have the power to live a holy life. And you say, Jesus, please help me. Okay? This is the problem that we have in terms of an American understanding and really a Western understanding of repentance is we think repentance is something like, I will turn away from sin and I will get it right. Well, okay, first off, just giving up sin is not repentance. Listen, in, in Greek, repentance is like this. It's called metanoia. I'm walking west. This is liturgical west, by the way. It's, I know it's north, but it's west, right? And I turn like this, 180, and I go east like this. Do you see? If I just turn to the right away from sin, am I going away from, well, not entirely. Am I turning towards God and his purposes? No. So for the Christian, turning towards God and saying, I need you to draw me into your life by your grace, is repentance. Okay? And that's the only thing that can solidify it. Um, and so I often hear confessions, and one of the things they'll often say in a confession is, it seems like you really want to give up sin, but it doesn't seem like you really want God's will. And I, I hate to, like, you know, stick that barb in, but sometimes it's effective. It says, I didn't realize like, <laughs> that, that's, that that's part and parcel. It is. It's totally what repentance is. Um, so we do that. You, you, uh, you have no reason, and this is the other part too, is we should have no reason to fear uh, God's judgment if, if that's what we seek. If we seek to, uh, to live in God's grace and mercy, um, we know that the judge who will judge us is our Savior, um, Jesus Christ, who loves me, died for me, and who intercedes for me. Um, we as Christians in the life of repentance have the benefit of the one who pours out his grace upon us constantly at the right hand of the Father, constantly interceding for us, constantly pouring mercy upon us. And listen, for Eucharistic Christians who turn every Sunday to the Eucharist, what do we have there? Okay, I'm just going to say this bluntly. The only power that you and I have against sin and death is the power of the cross, the power of Jesus' blood. And we don't, we don't receive this power in some esoteric way. Most, I mean, you can, but, but it's not kind of like this, yeah, uh, I'm going to go sort of pray while I'm on the road and receive this power and grace. No, for the, for the Christian, um, you know, how does Jesus say you receive this? How does the New Testament say you receive this fellowship with his body and blood? Exactly. Um, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ, Paul says? The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Um, it is by participation in Christ crucified through the Eucharist that we receive the benefits of his body and blood for repentance. Okay? We also receive forgiveness as well, um, which is an amazing thing. Um, but but that's, that's to say that um, there is more power in one drop of the Eucharist, uh, to, to alter your life radically uh, than anywhere else. Um, and you might say, so why isn't it effective? Why isn't it working? Let me just, let me just say that. Eucharistic grace is not automatic. Um, it, it has to be activated through the life of prayer and a life of faith and a life of, of surrender to God's will. Um, so I want you to hear that, that it's, if you can ask as you, as you approach the altar today, um, Lord, let this not just be a comfort to me, but let this draw me out of the life of sin. Let this lead to repentance. Let this uh, be to me uh, strength. Um, I always love, you know, I'll get to your question. I always love uh, the Lord of the Rings, you know. Uh, Tolkien, is, Tolkien is actually telling us something by talking about Lembus, this elven bread. You know what I'm talking about? 
okay, that they eat along the way. And, it, and, it, and it, it's mysterious bread, isn't it? Because it ha- what is, what's it like? Yeah, right. One bite is enough to fill a grown man's stomach. What else? Yeah, it's kind of it's 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 very it's just deeply mysterious, right? But but you get the sense as you read as you read this that the the hobbits, especially the hobbits, everybody else is eating it too, but especially the hobbits, like they don't have what's in them to do this task. Um. There's something which is giving them strength, which is foreign to them. That's the point that Tolkien's making, I think. And so uh, that's, that's, that's what we see in the Eucharist is this. What, what is power for you to, to have victory over sin is not you. It's Jesus. Um, and that is what we teach here. What does Scripture mean when it tells you to fear God? It means that I should live mindful of His presence, walking in humility as His creature, resisting sin, obeying his commandments, and reverencing him for his holiness, majesty, and power. Um, there's, there are really two kinds of fear, right? There's the kind of subservient fear. Is that what we're talking about here? It's kind of, you're going to beat me, so I'm going to be good. <laughs> it's not that kind of fear. The fear of God, um, biblically speaking, is um, in the Psalms, the beginning of wisdom. Um, it is, to, it is to say that, uh, that what makes someone wise is this deference to God, um, this life of reverence, this life of humility, uh, this life which resists pride. I've been thinking lately about how um, in, the, in the classical world, it's, it's hilarious because you'll see pride is a virtue and humility is bad, Right? Um, humilitas is spoken of as, as almost like that's something that losers have. Okay? Pride is something good men have, right? What, what do Christians do? In those first several, we just flip that upside down. Humilitas becomes a virtue. Pride is sin, clearly. Um, and, and this is how, uh, this is the kind of life which we should live before God. Um, to live in fear of God for the Christian is a good uh, because... Through it, we stop doing the very thing which, which is at the heart of all sin, um, which is this life of just terrible pride. One of my kids asked yesterday, Dad, what's pride? And I said, pride is essentially, you know, this is my given catechist answer, but, but it's pride is when you walk up to the throne of God and you say, I believe you're sitting in my seat. Um, there you have it. So, so uh, I will decide what's good and bad for me. I will decide what's right. I will do this. I will do all of that. Um, no, the, the gospel calls us to humility in the face of judgment. Question 78, should you pass judgment on sinners or non-Christians? No, God alone judges those outside the church. The church may proclaim God's condemnation of sin and exercise godly discipline over members who are unrepentant, but I am called only to judge between right and wrong, to judge myself in the light of God's holiness, and to repent of my sins. Oh, I love, I love this answer's good, because listen, here's the problem. We, we sit there and we often say things like this, well, I just, I don't, I don't want to judge, okay? Um, and in truth, yes, that's basically right, you shouldn't. Um, God alone judges those outside the church. And so when we uh, consider uh, what's going on outside the church, our, our continual posture should be that of mercy and prayer. Um, but we need to be really clear about um, the kind of discipline that should be expected in the church. And it's not because we expect the church to have no sinners, right? I forgot about your question. I'll get to it. Um, it's not because we expect there to be no sinners in the church. What is it? Being a member of the church says that you, uh, you, you rely upon the church um, to do for you what you cannot do. Um, Father Nicholas is, is going to go on a tear about this in the homily today. I don't want to ruin it for you. But, but to be a member of the church means that you, you, trust your, you entrust yourself to the church. You join yourself to the church for the purposes of your own sanctification. 
And in an individualistic world, that strikes us as terrible, right? How could I possibly do that? Um, but let me just say something about this. Part of thinking well, just at a base level, is thinking with others. Alan Jacobs has talked a lot about this as of late, and he's dead on right, that, that the most powerful thinking happens when you think with others. And for Christians, we think what? With the church. This is one of the things we do with Brazos Fellows, and you all are sitting there like, yeah, that's it. It's like, that's exactly it. We, we think with the church, and it's this incredible exercise. Um, we also live a life of repentance and ex- expectation of judgment with the church. Um, to be a Christian is, is inherently an ecclesial activity. Um, and it's, so it's in that vein uh, that, that uh, the church can and does proclaim God's condemnation of sin um, and may exercise godly discipline over members who are unrepentant. Well, what does this look like? Um, well, we're going to answer this question down in question 80, but it essentially looks like um, some manner of calling people, uh, usually privately, usually in unseen ways, um, to some kind of uh, to repentance. Um, and that can take a variety of forms. Um, you know, to, to be clear, most of the time it's, it's people coming and saying, I don't know what to do. <laughs> I'm in this pickle. What can I do about that? And, and, uh, and I've, I've often felt the power of God in saying, you know, uh, you really need to leave that life behind. Um, and, and, you know, and I find myself saying, how can I help you do that? Um, in other times, it's to identify really... Uh, quite difficult behavior, so, and, then, and then to call it to account. But I'm going to talk about that in a bit here. Can I get to your question? Sure. Yes, this is great. So this is a good question. He's asking, should we see the sacraments as the means of grace or a means of grace? And I think I would say this, that um, there's that phrase, means of grace, is open-ended in, um, in uh, prayer book terminology. Uh, we give thanks, for instance, in the general thanksgiving for the means of grace and the hope of glory, right? And people are always and forever holding forth. What is, what is the means of grace, you know? Are we talking about the sacraments here? And I think for most Anglicans, we say, yes, yeah, definitely something like that. And some other things, right? Uh, so I don't think we say that the sacraments are the exclusive means of grace, and no one says that, to be, to be blunt. However, I want to be clear that the sacraments are sure and certain means of grace. And the distinction there is that um, we, ba- we teach this, that um, in, in the Eucharist, for instance, we don't say something like, Lord, we really hope that this will be your body and blood. We're, we're kind of sure, maybe. No, we, we, we go forth in confidence that if we do this, God will be present, and He will pour out His grace. Right? We don't sort of hold the we don't sort of uh, hold someone over baptismal waters and say, um, "I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit." Maybe you'll receive the Holy Spirit. <laughs> that would be good. That'd be great, actually. No, we say, um, we we make the sign of the cross. You have received the Holy Spirit, um, and you've been marked as Christ's own forever. We make we say that very confidently. And, and the answer I would give is, why do we do that? You should know the answer by now. Because that's what Scripture says, right? It's like, it's very simple. It's like, that's what the Bible says, right? Um, you know, the, the words of Peter on the, on the day of Pentecost are, you know, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sin. So that's the first thing that happens in baptism, and sin is forgiven. And you will receive the promised Holy Spirit. Okay? That's what, that's what happens. Um, so, the, way I, the quick answer is this. God can give his grace any way he wants. He chooses to give his grace through sacraments um, in a sure and certain way. Um, and let me just tell you that that's a, great, that's a great grace, right? Because here's part of the problem. If we don't have sacraments, we'll sort of sit there and say, I really hope I received God's grace. I don't really know, though. I'm kind of uncertain. And... I mean, I sometimes sit and wonder, if you wonder what I pray about when I'm sitting there just kind of praying about things, this is often one of the things, like, how could you even live that way? Um, it's, it's a sort of um, uh, just wondering if God has given you what's necessary to even live life, 
So there's that. And I would say as well, you know, there, there's everyone, everyone in the world receives grace just by the fact that they don't drop dead, right? Everyone in the world receives grace just by the fact that, you know, this happens some places in the world, but, but by and large, you know, we can go out and not get murdered in the street, right? Uh, that's grace. Uh, but the specific kind of sacramental grace um, that we're speaking of here is, is grace that, um, that, that sanctifies us. Um, so, I'm glad you asked that question. How do you judge yourself? With the help of the Holy Spirit, I judge myself by examining my conscience. I may use the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, or other equivalent scriptures, as well as godly counsel, to help me see my sin. This may not be something that you're particularly used to, um, but it's a good habit to get into, and the the great uh, saints and spiritual writers teach us a way of what's called examination of conscience. Um, And this can happen every day, it can happen uh, once a month, and it can happen every year. And actually, I would say it should happen in all three ways. Um, You should do this, uh, uh, it's kind of like this. Um, It's like cleaning your house, right? Kind of say, every day I need to do this. Once a week, I need to scrub the toilets, right? And then maybe once a year, I'll do spring cleaning, right? Where we really get in all the nooks and crannies and crevices. Do you see what I'm talking about? Like, there's the general, and then there's the more thorough. And um, usually a a more thorough precedes something like a sacramental confession, Um, but uh, it's very good to get in this habit of saying at the end of a day, what what happened today that I did that I bear responsibility for that I shouldn't have done, and is there a way that I can make it right tomorrow, right? Sometimes it's simply pick up the phone, make the call, say, I realize that I said this yesterday, and I... I think it might have been taken in the wrong light, and I really apologize to you for what I said yesterday. And that's it. And you'll be amazed at how much lighter you feel by all of that uh, going on. And sometimes it gives you the sense that you really need to take care of this. This isn't just going to go away. Um, the more things like weekly and monthly, uh, usually you're thinking now about sins that you commit repeatedly, that you seem to not have mastery over. And, uh, and that's really one of the things where um, the the... The prayer book, as well as other uh, instruments, encourage you if you can't sort of say something along the lines of, um, if your conscience is afraid of these sins, to, to do something about it. Um, and and a, a confession is a good way to go, and we'll talk about that um, here as we go forward. Um, but how can you do a, a good examination of conscience? Ten Commandments are a great place to start. <laughs> Usually covers most of the bases, okay? It's like, uh, and, and I'm amazed, I've been amazed through the years, just the number of people who just don't know the Ten Commandments well enough to, from memory, say, yes, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I know them by heart. Um, and, uh, and what that means is that it's really hard to make a good examination of conscience on a daily basis. Um, and so memorize the Ten Commandments as soon as possible, um, and this will be a lot easier to do. Um, but we can also do things like read the Sermon on the Mount and say, where have I fallen short here? That's a much more uh, intensive process, I would say. <laughs> like uh, sitting down with a pad of paper in the Sermon on the Mount and saying, golly, uh, blessed are the merciful. Have I not been merciful? And you go through it. Um, how have I done things like uh, parade my spiritual life around so that others can see it and it just builds up my pride? That will find you in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, There are lots of scriptures that can be used in this way. Um, Very often, the daily recitation of the Psalter will lead you to sort of some kind of repentance, um, and all of this helps you to see your sin. The other thing that I would say, too, is one of of the benefits of of making a sacramental confession is I have very often had people sitting next to me in a confession, and they say, well, I did this, and I don't feel right about it, and I'll say something like this. How do you think that was sinful? They'll say, well, I just don't, I don't know. I don't have peace about it. And maybe sometimes I'll say, I don't think that was a sin. <laughs> I think part of the problem is you've been conditioned to feel bad about doing something that you should feel some peace about. So let it go, right? Um, very often this has to do with um, things like setting appropriate boundaries, right? So one of the things that, you, that if, you set a, if you set a good boundary with somebody and then they, they get really angry about it and they want you to feel guilty about it, um, Sometimes what happens is you say, I just really feel bad about that, and you don't have a a rest in your conscience. Well, 
Sometimes it's, you should feel rest about your conscience. Like, you did the right thing. Uh, let's move on. Um, the, the, sometimes the best news in a confession is, you didn't do anything wrong. Um, so, hear that. Um, and that's where godly counsel can really come in and be helpful. Um, just a word about, we're going to cover this as we, as we move forward, but a word about um, how we Anglicans practice confession. Pra- confession is not a kind of juridical practice to set you in God's grace yet again, uh, to make sure you never spend time in purgatory, because quite frankly, uh, we Anglicans, um, well, we don't, we don't require people to believe in purgatory, although some persist in believing in it, uh, and, and, you know, in a good way, I guess. Uh, C.S. Lewis did. Um, but it's largely a pastoral practice, right? It's, it's meant to give you uh, uh, um, victory in the life of, of, uh, of sanctification. And that's really the reason. It's, it's a pastoral practice. Um, and so that's the purpose. Although, and I will say this too, we keep the seal of confession, what's called the seal, which means that um, I cannot act in any way on anything said to me in the midst of a confession. Nothing. I can't look at you differently. I can't look at others differently. I can't, like, if you, if you came to confession and said, there's a bomb under the pew and it's going to go off in five minutes and then you leave, I couldn't leave the church. That's how seriously we take it. And the reason is simple. The reason is that this thing does not exist for the sake of justice or the preservation of human life. There are things far more important than justice and the preservation of human life in God's world. Mercy, forgiveness, far outstrip those goods. Um, so I want you to hear that, that, that this, this will mess with your mind because a lot of us think, oh, there's nothing more important than justice. And this tells us straight up, yes, there is. Um, so I want you to hear that. Um, now, having said that, I do have the opportunity to give counsel to people. <laughs> and, uh, and so if someone's committed a crime, sometimes the counsel I give is, you need to turn yourself into the police, right? Um, and uh, if you think that, um, lest you think that the confessions that I've heard have been boring, by the time I'd been a priest for nine months, I'd heard every one of the Ten Commandments confessed, including murder, adultery, and the rest. These are normal things. Uh, and by the way, I am usually, by and large, bored to tears hearing confessions because sin is boring. And if you think you're going to impress me, you need to repent of that sin because it's pride, okay? (laughs) All right, there's nothing original. Like, I know there's original sin, but nothing is really original when it comes to this, okay? Uh, So that's just just the reality of it. I am, uh, you know, I've been a priest for 14 years. I have yet to be shocked. I have yet to be impressed. I have yet to kind of sit there and say, wow. <laughs> it's just so dreadfully boring and, uh, and unimpressive. So there you go. Um, and I know that because my own sins are unimpressive, right? They're not particularly interesting. Um, and uh, so there's that. Okay. So, judging yourself is a part of this Christian life, and I think we really need to say more about that. Um, but let's, let's finish up with question 80, because I think you'll see where a lot of this goes. How does the church exercise its authority to judge? A priest acting under the authority of the bishop may bar a person from receiving communion because of unrepented sin or because of enmity with another member of the congregation until there is clear proof of repentance and amendment of life. But the authority Christ gave to his church is more often exercised by declaring God's in absolution. I want to read to you, because uh, I have the prayer book in front of me, the, the text of the rubric that's, that, that speaks to this. Um, let me get this right. This is just going to take me a bit of time. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm just going to read it to you. It's it's fairly simple. It says, concerning discipline at Holy Communion, if the priest knows that a person who is living a notoriously evil life intends to come to communion, the priest shall privately instruct that person not to come to the Lord's table until he or she has given clear proof of repentance and, and amendment of life. The priest shall follow the same procedure with those who have done wrong to their neighbors and are a scandal to the other members of the congregation. 
not allowing such persons to receive communion until they have made restitution for the wrong they have done. When the priest sees that there is enmity between members of the congregation, the priest shall speak privately to each of them, telling them that they may not receive communion until they have forgiven each other. And if the person or persons on one side truly forgive the others and desire and promise to make up their faults, but those on the other side refuse to forgive, the priest shall allow those who are penitent to come to communion, but, those, but not those who are obstinate. In all such cases, the priest is, notify, is required to notify the bishop as soon as possible, within 14 days of the most, giving the reasons for, receiving, for, for refusing communion. Um, so that's the, that's the rubric. I've invoked it maybe five or six times my entire time as a priest. Glad of that. Uh, but here's the reason. First off, I'm doing no one any favors if someone who is obstinate and notoriously evil comes to communion because it's going to scandalize all of you, right? I'm also not doing them any favors because sometimes all that needs to be said is, listen, pull them aside privately and say, listen, what you are doing is not good. It is notorious. It's, it's problematic. Your soul is in danger. And you must repent of it if you were to receive communion. And they say, oh, my goodness, I had no idea how bad that was. And it's just like, I didn't realize it was that serious. I'm like, yes, it's that serious. And, we, and, and something is done about it. Um, so please understand, what, what, is, what, is, uh, what is exercised here is most often just a declaration of God's forgiveness and, and absolution. It's, it's really that simple. Um, and note that uh, this last line about I've got to notify the bishop um, is, first off, so that if there's repentance, the bishop doesn't get notified. And the circle of embarrassment is very low, right? The idea is to, to move on as fast, as quickly as possible with very few people knowing. But if things don't get sorted out, the bishop gets notified. Um, and, and the reason for that is so that the bishop can note this with others and also so that, um, so that the bishop can offer me counsel on how to deal with it. Um, and that's a really big thing, and it's a good thing. Um, I will say as well, uh, when, I was a, when I was a young curate, we had a, a situation in the diocese where there was this rather locally famous guy who had been, uh, he'd been barred from communion uh, because this is essentially what happened. His wife had um, uh, gotten a viral infection in her spine, and it paralyzed her from the neck down. And he basically forced her to get divorced. He left her and married another woman. And he was excommunicated within our diocese um, for this. And um, there was a really great witness made to this because it is, it is our... Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah. Okay. Let me, let me just uh, say um, what, what ultimately happened was uh, our, our new bishop made the call and said, you are not allowed to receive communion in this church. And then this guy was publicly defending traditional marriage on his radio show. He, he was a radio personality, conservative talk radio. And our new bishop called his hotline for his radio show and called him out publicly for this and said, you're a hypocrite. Um, you have not repented of what you've done and the evil that you've done, and you know this, and so if you're going to get this right, this is what's right. And he proclaimed the church's teaching on marriage and on public radio. On, it, was, it wasn't public radio. It was, uh, well, it was a radio station in Dallas-Fort Worth. But that's the level of this, right? this. This man had wreaked havoc in his life and the lives of his children by doing this. And he was not repentant and is still not repentant to this day, right? And still, there's still a pronouncement that says this. If you want to receive communion again, you will leave the woman you're with and you will, you will be steadfast to your wife, you see how seriously we take this, right? It's that serious. Um, so I want to make sure that you know that, that um, this is, this is uh, it's a hard thing that we have to do, but it's worthwhile because that clarity is important. Now, people often ask the question, they'll say something like this, if, um, if there's something that I have done that no one knows about, but I know about it, and I'm concerned about it, should I receive communion or not? And, and I'll say this, you should measure that basically like this. If, if people were to find out, would it be scandalous? And if so, why haven't you come to confession, right? 
It really is that simple. Um, the other thing that I would say is, um, is that uh, there, are, there are sins that we commit on a regular basis that are not scandalous. They're, they're, they're sins that are very common um, and that, uh, that we deal with and we are constantly dealing with them, and that should not bar someone from communion. Let's just say that clearly. Um, in fact, you need communion to fight that. Um, but there are some things that, um, that will just really hound your conscience day in and day out, and it's those things uh, that, um, uh, that we should be mindful of. And in fact, there's this text in the prayer book, which I will also quote to you, and it's called the Exhortation, and um, it's very helpful as well. And I'll just give you the relevant portion of that. Um, page 147 in the new prayer book. I'm, I'm so excited to have prayer books in the pews because we'll be able to reference them as we do catechesis. Um, if, if, this is what it says, if you have come here today with a troubled conscience and you need help and counsel, come to me or to some other priest and confess your sins that you may receive godly counsel, direction, and absolution. To do so will both satisfy your conscience and remove any scruples or doubt. Um, Here's the problem. If we try to deal with sin that's on our conscience and weighs on our conscience by ourselves, how's that going to go for us? You're all looking at me with blank faces. Come on, you know. Not well, yeah. Not well at all. Uh, It never goes well. uh, Because it was doing things, I mean, listen. Hell has a theme song, and the theme song is, I did it my way. And, And... that's why we don't do I Did It My Way, which is, by the way, that's the most popular song for funerals in America. Did you know that? It's, it is the most popular song at funerals. And it's not allowed here, but there, there you go. Um, but, but that's hell's theme song, is I Did It My Way. Um, we must have um, the attitude that says, doing it my way is what got me in trouble in the first place. And so trying to deal with this continual sin that enslaves me on my own is not working out. Um, I've got to turn to others. I've got to turn to the church for absolution um, and counsel. Another thing that I've been teaching lately that I I really uh, think is important is this. The confession form which we have in the prayer book is really great. Um, and we've had it, you know, this is how it always works, but I don't begin the liturgy. I don't start it. You do. So the penitent says, bless me for I've sinned. Okay, so you're, you're basically telling the priest what you need. Bless me for I've sinned. Okay. Um, and so, okay, I'll give you a blessing. <laughs> then what? You confess your sins and you ask for counsel, direction, and absolution. And because you've asked for it, I give it. It's like, well, here's some counsel, here's some direction, here's some absolution. And, and then it's, there's a blessing and the pronouncement of absolution, and it's over. And then in this, one of my favorite parts is when I say, um, go in peace, um, and I say, and pray for me, a sinner, um, it's, it's, it's to say that at this moment, you are more free from sin than I am. Um, do you see what's going on here? It's this wonderful exchange that's just taken place. Now, to many of you, I know this will be rather foreign, um, but I must remind you that Scripture does, does say uh, that we should confess our sins to one another. <laughs> Scripture absolutely says that, um, that, for instance, in James chapter 5, that, uh, that uh, the prayer of a righteous man avails much um, in terms of our sin. And I should also remind you that in the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John, on the day that Jesus is risen from the dead, he breathes on his, on his apostles, he breathes on them, and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then what does he say? If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Okay. First words out of his mouth, the day of the resurrection. Would you say that might be important? <laughs> like, yes, absolutely. Uh, so know that. Know also that um, I wouldn't hear confessions if I didn't make my own. So that's clear enough. Um, that's absolutely essential. I don't make my confession near as much as I should, but, but that's always the problem. Um, uh, but I would say that, um, that uh, I don't 
I don't sit here and sort of say, you take the medicine and I'm going to leave it alone. No, I need it as much as you do, if not, probably more so. <laughs> but, but so hear that. Um, and all the clergy of Christ Church are regular in their confessions, so you have that going for you. Um, it's great to have uh, several priests that you can turn to, um, to that end, uh, because, um, and we, I'll say this, we do a lot, we do a lot of confession in, at Christ Church. Um, and it's not because we sort of say, you should do it and you must do it. Listen, the old rule is, all may, none must, some should. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and I venture to say that's probably most people should. Um, uh, but that's, that's a general rule. Um, and I, I think that's probably even a little lighter than I would put it. I would say some absolutely should. Um, uh, and, and that's because of just the things that weigh on the conscience. Okay? Um, One more thing just, just to put there, you know, this is to say that um, what we do in this, and what we do even on Sundays in just kind of corporate and general confessions is we, we ask for God's judgment on sin now, right? We essentially say, I don't want to wait around for this. So we ask for judgment now, and the judgment comes in the form of mercy, right? That's a great thing. Go ahead. Confession was very common in the medieval church, and one of the one of the one of the grand debates in the Reformation is about this exact sacrament. It's the question of what goes on in it, how necessary is it? Must all make their confession or not? And one of the things that had happened from the 13th century going forward was that there was a mandate that everyone must make a confession once a year. And the reformers actually saw this as a step backward. They said, "But but that's not true. Um, scripture has no mandate for this." It's available, but there's no mandate. Um, so that's, that's part of the, part of the thing. Um, I would also say that uh, in Anglicanism, it's very clear to me at least, that uh, high church Anglicans will, will, uh, will speak to this much more than low church Anglicans who are kind of like, yeah, we do that, but we just don't tell anybody. Like, and, and I find that to just be um, rather lamentable because it's something you can do and it's something you should do, right? Um, it's something... Anglicans have always done, uh, and, and in grand Anglican fashion, right? Rather than correcting to the other end, we just correct it to the middle, right? We say, we're not going to get rid of it. We're going to keep doing this. Um, but it's, it's going to be different, and the, and the emphasis is not on sort of absolving sin for juridical reasons, but has to do with uh, pastoral restoration. So one of the things that a former Roman Catholics tell me when they start making their confession as an Anglican is, uh, is something like this. Man, you know, you just spend a lot more time giving counsel. You spend a lot more time with me, isn't that? You know, that's great. Um, and, uh, and it's not just kind of like pray, pray this, pray that, and get out of my face. Like, uh, they don't say that, but, but, it's, but it's like, well, let's talk about that. Um, because it's, it's, it's meant to be helpful, um, and I think that's, that's key. So counsel is very important. You know, by the way, the, 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 the evolution of auricular confession in the church um, comes about actually uh, in several ways. One is that you've got to understand the background was that it was universally understood that uh, if you were a baptized Christian who had committed notorious sin, you had to be absolved before coming back into the Eucharistic fellowship of the church. And usually that happened through uh, prayer and fasting at the doors of the church, usually in sackcloth and ashes. It was a miserable thing. And what they found was that this was leading people to delay baptism. Um, and people would say, no, I'm not going to get baptized yet. I don't want to do that. Um, it was leading people certainly to stop having their children baptized. Um, and so one of the things that happened was, if you read the church fathers, man, they hate this fact, right? They're just so frustrated by it. It's like, you know, <laughs> Don't delay baptism because you never know. You might die tomorrow. And, you know, I know that deathbed, death, deathbed baptisms are very popular these days, but, you know, I'm not, I might not, I love John Chrysostom. John Chrysostom says, you know, I'm like, just like anybody else, I get busy and I might not make it to your deathbed to baptize you. So his advice is now's the best time, right? Um, now's the day of salvation is what he says. <laughs> uh, so, well, if you do that, and people still live in fear of this public repentance that might be required. Um, and by the way, this meant like Good Friday afternoon, 
standing before the church, confessing your sins at the end of a long period of repentance. Um, and that doesn't help things either because uh, it's, I committed adultery with Dave's wife in front of the whole church. It's like, you're probably not going to, you know, that's not going to do good things, right? So, so the understanding that confession could then be um, private and, and auricular was, was there. The other thing, too, is that if a sin is not public, people just sort of leave it to the side, and they don't seek uh, absolution in that way. Um, the, the way that um, confession became uh, in this way, came into being done in this way, uh, by all accounts, is that it was an Irish innovation um, coming out of St. Patrick, um, who is, <laughs> listen, the Irish, if, if there's public confession among the Irish, they're going to get sloshing drunk and probably kill each other. Um, so uh, the answer was, we'll make this private, and the seal will be absolute, not to be broken, and that became the norm in the West. Um, I think that's a good norm, actually. I think that's a very good thing, because A, it preserves our teaching on baptism, right, which is that it shouldn't be delayed. You need God's grace. You need God's mercy. You need to live by the Holy Spirit, and so don't delay it. And it also teaches us that we should confess our sins, right? So it, it maintains this. What's at the heart of the sacrament, if I can be clear, is not the form and the way that we do it. What's at the heart of the sacrament is Jesus' command to his apostles to forgive the sins, uh, to forgive the sins of any. Um, and so I hope that, I hope that helps. Okay, we're going to talk more about this when we get to the sacrament section, but I felt like, why not? Let's front load it. Um, <laughs> um, and I hope that blesses you today. Um, so uh, the way that we do confession, and, and in the future we'll probably have um, uh, a standard day for this. Um, and usually, you know, if you come by a church on a Wednesday, I'm usually here in the morning. Um, but uh, you can call and uh, you can text my phone. My phone number is given on the website. Actually, the church phone number goes straight to my phone. So uh, if, if you want to make a confession, just give me a call and I will show up um, wherever you want to meet me. Um, I tell people this too. Um, this is the one thing that you should not apologize for uh, interrupting your priest's life to do um, because I can just tell you nothing I'm doing at the moment is more important than this. About the only thing more important is being in the middle of celebrating the Eucharist, right? Don't interrupt that. But, but it's to say, nothing is more important. So if you call me and, and you are in total distress and I'm in the middle of my kid's birthday party, I have to leave and come and hear your confession, right? And my family will be like, Argh! but I will tell you, Ella's like, that's awesome, right? She'd be like, first one to say, absolutely, go get this done. Um, because... It's not a moment too soon, and it's not a moment too late. So please keep that in mind. Um, you know, we'll often have the experience of, of people saying, I'm sorry I interrupted your day to do this. And most of us will say, are you kidding? Like, this is the coolest thing that I get to do. <laughs> and, and it's such a joy uh, to, to uh, be a part of that. Um, I will tell you a story from my own life. I was making my confession one time before a man who would later be my bishop. And uh, it was a very hard confession to get through. And I was in tears, half of it. And uh, he lifted up his hand like this. And I looked up and thought, he's going to hit me. <laughs> and he was, he, was a, he was sitting in a wheelchair. And he was like, praise God. <laughs> he just was like, he was so kind and so gentle. And I, I, I thought, God, thanks be to God. Because I could not hear in that internal voice, God's voice of mercy. I was so numb to it. But hearing it through this holy bishop's voice gave me confidence. Um, you need to hear that voice. And if you're having trouble hearing it, um, th this is the way. Um, and so uh, I want to encourage you to that. Again, none must, but some should. We'll come back next week.